Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It's a happy hour today on Monday. Welcome back. Hope you're enjoying those long summer days and getting outside as much as you can. I almost feel as if summer is heading in toward its end and as if it's just starting for us. So maybe you're in the same boat and need to be a little more intentional about what you're doing as the busyness of life ensues. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Joining me just a little bit here on Trending will be Devin Shat from the Fathers of St. Joseph. And we're going to unpack the seven needs of a woman. Ladies, it's something good to know and kind of think about. Maybe you agree or disagree if these are needs that you have. And gentlemen, these are all about how you can meet the needs of your wife, whether you're dating in a relationship or want to be. There's much to be learned from it about relationships and about ourselves as women as well and if these needs are being met and if maybe there's a little bit of work that needs to be done in some of these areas so we'll unpack that in just a little bit here on trending now we're going to dive into our series on pope saint john paul ii's theology of the body and this week as we unpack starting on catechetical talk 15 is we are in this long form series just dabbling a little bit each day in this profoundly theological philosophical text of Pope St. John Paul II that is rooted 100% in a biblical anthropology, Pope St. John Paul II draws our attention to this idea of original happiness. And when discussing original happiness, he unpacks how this is connecting the dots of all of this, these different types of original states in the garden we've been discussing. Original innocence, original nakedness, the spousal meaning of the body, the gift of self, and how all of this was that historical state of the human person originally in the garden prior to the fall and how from that we understand what we are made for, what our blueprint is as human beings. And at the end of the day, the answer to every crisis of the culture, whether it's the breakdown of marriage, the lack of children today, the pangs over identity and the crisis of gender ideology. This is why some people may say, hey, this is trending with Timory. Why are you getting so deep into theology? Because... Theology is the answer to what is happening in the culture today. And with that, it requires that we have a certain sense of interior freedom that I think is at the heart of what people are suffering from today. While we may be free, let's say, if you live in the Western world, if you live in the United States, yet at the same time, freedom needs to begin with understanding how God created us and interiorly allowing ourselves to be free, detached from those things that could rule our lives, which are our lower faculties when you dive into theology. The freedom and original innocence that occurred in the garden gave the spousal meaning of the body and that original state of nakedness that occurred prior to the fall, this greater freedom in the human person being able to be free because 
all of this points to what Pope St. John Paul II refers to as a hermeneutic of gift. Because the human person in the garden was naked in an original state of innocence in perfect communion with God and neighbor, that is between Adam and Eve, they were free because they had a sense of self-mastery and self-dominion because they understood themselves because they were in right relationship with God. And I know that's a lot of contingent, those are a lot of contingent statements, but that's what our whole life is. And if we miss that, we miss the fact that our whole life is dependent upon God and received from him. All is made possible by interior freedom and self-mastery and self-dominion because it's through that that we receive grace and exercise grace and virtue. The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, Pope St. John Paul II says, were able to enjoy the whole truth, the whole self-evidence of the human being prior to the fall. He actually starts to unpack one of the church documents known as Gaudium et Spes, which you think about it, came out in the middle of the 20th century at a time in which the bloodiest century recorded in human history occurred. You have World War I going into World War II. You have communism, Nazi Germany. And in the midst of all of this, the church says something very profound that Pope St. John Paul II really points his finger at over and over again. In fact, I love part of this statement from Gaudium. It says one of the church documents that I actually at one point, and I, let me tell you, I don't paint, but it was one of those times where my sisters were into canvases and writing messages on canvases. And I actually wrote this on my canvas that we painted. And again, I'm a terrible painter. It's a little bit of a joke. Can't even paint or draw a good stick figure. And yeah, I put this quote on there and had it in my college dorm room for quite a while. And in summary, it's this idea that the human person was created by God and that the human person is the only creature created by God for him or herself. That God just delighted in creating us for our, for our own sake. And that with that, we as human beings, even though God created us for ourselves, for us out of an act of love, he created us with a blueprint. And that we can only find ourselves through a disinterested gift of self. Now, Pope St. John Paul II paraphrases, but also articulates it differently. God says, says through a sincere gift of self. That's the only way we can discover ourselves and find true happiness. But he says, Pope St. John Paul II, that this is through a disinterested gift of self. That is not through a self-seeking, self-soothing, self-pleasing He says, the disinterested gift of self is at the root of nakedness. That is, at the root of the original state of Adam and Eve in the garden as naked. That is, without any shame one before the other. As we've been discussing how shame wasn't present prior to the fall of Adam and Eve. And so with this, he teases out this idea that's so fundamental of original happiness that we're going to be really unpacking in this entire series of Theology of the Body, especially this week. It's through grace, the end of the day, that we have happiness. It's through grace that Adam and Eve had happiness in the garden because they were in full communion with God. They were in a state of grace. They didn't have original sin yet. In other words, they received everything 
And because of that, we're able to give everything. And Pope St. John Paul II points to how deeply personal that is in the revelation of the individual body. And he starts to talk about, actually, how this can be understood as well from the perspective of not just the spousal meaning of the body being lived out and the sexual sexual complementarity of male and female, but how that deeper dimension of the material physical complementarity, like a key and a lock, points to the gift of self, that hermeneutic of the gift, right? That interpretation of our lives and our bodies and human anthropology, as Pope St. John Paul II has been building on, as being made to be a gift given because we've received everything from God. Now, this can be also lived out, as he indicates, in a celibate way, in a virginal way, in a life that's not married. I hate it today when people talk so often about the single life and whether or not you're called to the single life. I don't think we should be defining it according to the single life. But Pope St. John Paul II says this is making a gift of self for the kingdom of heaven. Now that might be done through consecrated virginity, as a celibate priest. Much could be said of this, but what is it? It's not living out the single life of, hey, I'm single and I'm detached. It's that I'm so attached to God, I'm detached from the primordial human relationship of marriage. And through making a gift of self for the kingdom of heaven, you're saying yes to your body, yes to the gift you've received, and yes to the gift you're giving, but in a non-sexual way. And yes to God's design, that there's respect for the design of the body. And I think, interestingly, I think St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin Mary begin to model this as a precursor to Jesus. And here's why I say this, because we know the spousal meaning of the body, that is marriage between man and woman, is the primordial vocation. It is the natural vocation that is naturally understood through the body and through society, through our deepest desires by human psychology and sociology. Even through all of the studies shown on human happiness, the happiest people are the people who have gotten married, stayed married, and continued to maintain those meaningful relationships, such as in marriage and with their children and family members. But Mary and Joseph show marriage in a different light. They show it as a virginal, yet they're still parents. But then Jesus goes to the next step. They go from the gift of self virginally shown through the very unique and special marriage of Mary and Joseph and their motherhood and fatherhood that's lived out to then the virginal state of life that Jesus Christ lives. Set aside for the kingdom of heaven, as Pope St. John Paul II was talking about earlier, if you're living out that state unmarried. And Jesus paves the way for the whole tradition and revelation of saint after saint who lived a radically different life in embracing virginity and becoming saints. We have far more unmarried saints than married saints. Why? Because they set themselves aside for the kingdom of heaven. Even St. Paul and all the apostles questioned marriage because they recognized that it was more difficult because you're attached to another human being. And that carnal desire, while good, can also be a distraction. You're also pleased on pleasing your spouse and God. This is why the apostles go, well, why, why would you get married? Or St. Paul says, save yourself for, for God. 
And so I think that this is what's interesting is we're unpacking the theology of the body of understanding that original state of happiness, the affirmation of the human sexuality and the freedom in choosing through grace, self-mastery and self-dominion to live in accordance with the state in life you so deeply desire. Thanks for joining us during our Theology of the Body series. If you would like to catch up, we have posted four podcasts summarizing so far as we've been walking through Pope St. John Paul II's theological catechetical talks. You can catch them at relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you listen to your podcasts. They are there. And I hope you'll follow along. Share with me your thoughts if you've been reading along as well in the actual text of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. Joining me today is Devin Shatt. He is an author and the founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. And today we're unpacking seven needs of a woman during our weekly happy hour. And I love this because whether you're a man or a woman, married or not, it says a lot about who we are as women and the challenges that we have in growing to love and appreciate the differences between men and women. And I think this is particularly relevant for marriages. Devin Schatt, welcome back to Trending. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to be with you, Timory. So let's rattle through real quick the seven (laughs) needs of a woman that we have been working through together and looking at. I love when you came up with this list and we've been discussing it beforehand. If you want to rattle off those seven different needs of a woman, and then we can unpack them a little further together. Yeah, absolutely. So the first need overall is that a woman wants to be cherished. She wants to be not only respected, but to be cherished is to be held in the highest esteem by her husband. And in fact, I think it's in Ephesians 5.29, you know, or 5.28, somewhere in there where Paul he says that a man loves his own body and he cherishes it, and therefore he's to love his wife in the same way. And so we're called to cherish our wives. And then the second one is that every wife wants not only to be cherished, but she wants to be beautiful. <laughs> you look at any cosmetic store, you know, just what's online. I mean, women desire to be beautiful. It's innate to their being. And we can get into that in a minute. But then the third need of a woman is that she desires emotional intimacy, where guys, we tend to be more visual, and these are broad strokes, of course, but guys tend to be more visual and long for physical intimacy, which is good and noble, and God made us that way, so it's not perverted, (laughs) but women really long for emotional intimacy, and that's broad strokes, but that safety in relationship. And then also, the fourth one is women long for true friendship with their husband, And so that is where the security really comes in. And this is, for Mm -hmm. me, one of the favorite ones that, because I, let me just break in here with Song of Songs. It's beautiful because at one point when she has lost her lover and who's a symbol of really Christ, she is searching for him and she says to the choir, "Um, have you seen him? And they say, describe him. And she goes through this huge litany of what he looks like. And the last thing she says is, and he is my friend. And that's like the icing on the cake. Mm. That's like the ultimate statement. So that's what we're really supposed to be shooting for in marriage. And then fifth is that she, I think, desires a father for her children. Not another father for her, for sure. But she desires a really great father who's an icon of God the Father to her children. And then number six is that, as you pointed out, Timory, that the woman desires to be in sync in her relationships. And so... I would love to get into that with you and hear you just expound upon that. But I think that 
that's super important. And then lastly, I believe that a woman desires, ultimately, if she's got a relationship with God, if she has a relationship with Jesus Christ, she desires holiness from her husband, which really is expressed in his self-giving sacrifice, which you were just talking about, theology body. So those are the seven. That's kind of like the macro view. And uh, we can dig in as, as you see fit. I love these. And I want to really unpack these with you. If you're just joining us, this is Devin Schatt from the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.com. Devin, or sorry, .org. Devin, looking at the first one, it's so foundational and fundamental, even from developmental perspective. You said the first of the seven needs of a woman is to be cherished. This begins in childhood, right? You start your life as a child in Every person ideally would end their wife as a bride. And when I say bride, I don't just mean marriage, but I mean ultimately in union with Christ in heaven. And Mm -hmm. if you look at that foundationally, developmentally, you see, and I see this now, I'm in that season of life with young children, a two-year-old and a seven-month-old, and how important it is that they receive unconditional love to build up their sense of self, their sense of self-confidence, their understanding of healthy relationships, what is and isn't okay, and also that they're not just receiving unconditional love, but that they're being delighted in, not just that their needs are met, but they're being rejoiced in. And isn't that fundamentally at the heart of being cherished, that I think God starts our lives ideally, that we're receiving this from our parents, especially, you know, starting with the mom as well as being affirmed through that by the dad, but then how if someone's to marry, how you're supposed to find a certain respect of self-value and your ability to give yourself in marriage and then learn to love in that, all of that comes back to this idea of first being cherished fundamentally. I love what you just said about delighting in um, the woman or delighting in the spouse. That is that is what this cherishing is all about. And in fact, I mean, can you imagine that that opening you know chapter the opening chapters of genesis where adam is longing for his mate and when he sees eve he goes eh, you know she's okay i mean instead of crying out this is bone of my bones and flesh of my mm-hmm. flesh i mean adam was delighting in her and this mm-hmm. is the first moment like when adam was created he didn't see another human being he saw an expanse that needed order brought to it and that's like really part of the male psyche but when woman is created, what's the first thing she sees? She sees a man delighting in her. Mm, and that I, I believe that is how women are hardwired is that they long to give that delight. They long to be delighted in and particularly and especially from their husband. And I think this is where we get into pain and pleasure fundamentally for the woman is, is that when her husband delights in her, she has the greatest uh, emotional pleasure but when she, when her husband does not delight in her, eh, you know she's okay. That's the greatest pain for her, because she signed on for a lifelong commitment to a man that she thought delighted in her at one point in time, and maybe is not now. So this is fundamental as men. We need to cherish women as, and, and why wouldn't we? I mean, like if you look at the creation account, I think we've talked about this before, but everything is escalating in the creation account. It's building up. Yes. There's a crescendo, and the very last. The very last piece of creation is woman. And mm-hmm. why is she so pinnacle? Because she has the gift of maternity. She has the gift of beauty. She has all of this, you know, and we as men are called to protect that, uphold that, and, and dignity, you know, hold up that dignity. 
And this is precisely what's going on with our culture is rather than upholding the dignity of that beauty and cherishing it, we are using it and objectifying it. Mm, and I think we're already sliding into this idea of beauty that we're going to dive into in a moment. Mm. But before we do, I do want to comment a couple things you just just said in that you say the first thing that occurs for Eve at the dawn of creation in Genesis chapter 2 is that Adam delights in her. And I'm rereading Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and he said, when Eve is created, Adam's response is the first proclamation of rejoicing in the life of Adam, that for the first time he has a reason to rejoice. And it's because he has such a deep self-understanding of himself that he finally sees, ah, here's where I'm meant to give myself. Here's my purpose and essence (laughs) of my entire life. And you mentioned earlier, Devin, Ephesians chapter 5, where St. Paul talks about Christ presenting his bride and delighting in his bride. But what does Christ do? He presents his bride as a spotless victim, preserved also for her vocation and what she's meant to do in her life. And that's something we see profoundly in the life of Our Lady. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I mean, well, I I just want to back up a little bit here. So this idea of Adam rejoicing, that first proclamation of of delight or rejoicing. Why? I mean, it, it's it's because if we understand God, then we understand marriage. If we understand who God is, we understand the relationship between man and woman. And God is an eternal uh, self-offering of oneself to oneself. I mean, God is three persons who are in essence one, and it's total self-giving love. I mean, if God had a body, which he doesn't, we would call it ecstasy, which to means to be outside of oneself. The word is outside of himself in the Father. The Father is outside of himself in the Spirit. There is this total self-giving love. It's this explosion of love. And so when we understand that about God, that's that disinterested gift. No self-interest, just totally giving oneself to the other. And in that, there's this incredible delight in God. Well, God makes man and woman in his image and likeness. And what is this image and likeness? Well, they're not complete like God by themselves. But it's like what St. Paul says, I think in Colossians, he says, but above above all, put on charity, that is love, which is the bond of perfection. And that Greek word for perfection is to complete. This is what the Trinity is all about. The Trinity is completed love. And so he creates man and woman to complement in their sexual difference and complete one another. And that's what love is all about. And that's why he craves male and female mm. is to learn how to love because that's the mm. hardest thing to do. To live in relationship is the most difficult thing we can do on this earth because that's the tallest calling because that's what God is. He's an eternal relationship. Mm. And I know this gets really deep, but you made a comment a moment ago, and I do just want to touch on it from a theological point. You commented that God doesn't have a body but he does. Jesus Christ in the incarnation mm. is a body. You know, Jesus, there we yes. see, what did he do with his body? He delighted in you and I by offering himself on the cross. And that is the greatest symbol of love. That is why we make the sign of the cross and say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because it's a marking on our body of how we're meant to live our lives. And I think that's significant for understanding this dimension of cherishing another human being. I want to come back with you, Devin, and continue to unpack these seven needs of a woman. We've just touched on the first, the need of a woman to be cherished. We're going to come back to talk about beauty, the misunderstandings surrounding beauty, everything from emotional intimacy, friendship, and much more. That's Devin Shatt. 
an author and also the founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. We'll be right back here on Trending. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. Joining me today on the show is author and founder of Fathers of St. Joseph. And we're talking about male-female differences, really unpacking seven needs of women and i hope you'll join us i would welcome the thoughts on this topic numbers 888-914-9149 we just unpacked the first need and that is to be cherished and complementing that is the need to be beautiful now i know Devin, you've worked a lot on that and you pointed to even just our consumer culture and everything from the latest eye cream to the latest fashion trends how beauty is at the core of our culture yet with regard to women and beauty, I found our culture, especially the social media culture, visual culture we live in, has put so much pressure on women that we perpetually have to be two things. No matter your age, whether you're an eight-year-old child or a seven-year-old woman, that women are meant to always look hot and available. And yet beauty is so much more than that. So when you say that women have this need to be beautiful, I'd like to hear from you first, what makes you think that? Especially because you're married, you have many children, you have many daughters as well. Tease this out a little bit for me. Well, yeah, I just from my own experience with my wife, I have five daughters. um, It's just innate, it seems like, to the woman's psyche that she desperately desires or not desperately but desires to be beautiful now when that isn't received like when she doesn't feel beautiful or think that she's beautiful then she tends to try to mask herself or to try to and i'm, I'm saying this all in reverence and respect i'm not blaming anyone for anything here but i i think we try to figure out ways in which we can enhance our beauty more there's nothing wrong with enhancing our beauty but then there's times where we go beyond enhancing. Changing. And so the evidence mm-hmm. in the culture is that by means of, you know, all, you know, whether it's breast jobs or, you know, you know, where we're expanding our lip sizes and things like that, or we're, we're trying to take so much control of this because we've got the wrong idea of what beauty really is. And I think that fundamentally it takes a real man to draw out a woman's real beauty because real beauty isn't just the flesh you know there is the emotional the spiritual there's the psychological there's the, the entire person which expresses beauty in the woman and if it, it and this is the key for us men if our eyes can only see skin deep then we're not really being real men okay and that's precisely what the culture is taught us to believe is that beauty is only skin deep and this is precisely why it's so important for men uh, primarily to defeat lust in the heart. Because especially as husbands, if wives know, uh, I was at a party once and it was, it was just, it was a beautiful party, a lot of great people there, but there was a guy, his, he and his wife were there and my wife and I we were talking to them and 
this woman who was barely dressed bent over and this guy who was married to our friend, he just, he goggled her, you know, he just, mm-hmm. and she felt it. Everybody felt it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was so uncomfortable. And so what's the message to his wife? The message is, mm-hmm. is that she's not beautiful. Right. And mm-hmm. so this is where, like, I remember talking to my wife about this very early on in our marriage. And I said, you know what? I wrestle with lust. And she was like, she couldn't believe it. She said, I thought you were different. And I said, I am different (laughs) because I struggle with it. I fight against it. And she's like, oh, I get that. So you mean you're fighting for me? And that was was a deal. That that was a game changer for us. Because then she realized, I love her and I think she's beautiful. But yeah, I have to wrestle with the demon of lust. But I'm going to be the knight in shining armor and I'm going to do my best to win. And I think that... When we start to get to know our wives and we discover their emotional beauty, their psychological beauty, and also, yes, the body's beauty, of course, but the whole person, their intellectual beauty, that's when things really start to thrive and kick in the marriage. And I, I love this because, like you were saying, Jesus Christ has a body, and, I, and it's so essential to our understanding of marriage and sexuality and everything. Because if you look at like the song of songs, I mean, it's, it's crazy. The, the divine lover or the man, he's like your breasts, how beautiful are your breasts, you know, arise my beautiful one and come, you know, there is no spot in me, you know I mean? He's like, he, he is in, enraptured by her physical beauty. And in Psalm 45, that's even what the voice of God is saying to his beloved the king desires your beauty. So there is a physical aspect of this that is very important because that's the way God made us. He didn't just make us mm-hmm. spirits. Mm-hmm. He made mm-hmm. us body spirits. He an integrated person, at least we're supposed to be, so that we can offer that body in sacrifice. But I tell you what, bottom line is my wife, I think, if you were to ask her, she feels most beautiful when I offer my body as a holy and living sacrifice for her. That means defeating my lust, but also defeating my lust for her, loving her properly and upholding her dignity, not grasping and objectifying her. Mm. And understanding, I would add to that the difference between interior and exterior beauty and complementing the interior beauty as well, because beauty, youthful beauty is fleeting, yet the Mm. world desires perpetual youthful beauty. Um, We could talk about this from the cosmetic culture to dyeing your hair not that any of that's wrong to even you know engaging in plastic surgery there's this desire to never go beyond youthful beauty and i'll never forget when i started really to unpack this topic of beauty it was when pope saint john paul ii i had read that he had quoted dostoevsky the russian author and he commented that beauty will save the world and he was referencing that in when I read it, he was referencing specifically women, and I was kind of offended and worked up about it, thinking, well, wow, you know, all these women need to be, you, and I didn't understand now, but, you know, now you think of it as youthfully beauty, beautiful in order for the world to be saved. But I remember when I started to understand beauty is so much more than that, and it was transformative Absolutely. for me as a young woman to understand that beauty is more interior than exterior. They say over yeah, and over again, yeah. go ahead. Well, let me give you an example of this. Just, I love what you're saying. It just, all, all these fireworks go off in my brain right now. But I was, after my conversion, I was like probably like 25, 26, and I was going to daily mass. And I 
after mass, I went up behind these women who were praying the rosary and they were old. I mean, like old, like in their 60s, 70s, right? And, and, uh, is that really old? (laughs) 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 To you at the time, it was (laughs) at the time, yeah. But so they get done, and this little old lady, she's in the front row, right in the row, right in front of me. She turns and she just puts her hand on mine and she just says, It's so good to be with you, you know, having Mm -hmm. it with us. And but look, she had moles. She had big old glasses. She was very short. She had kind of like a boy haircut. And I went home that night and I said, I think I told my wife, I said, I think I've fallen in love with another woman. And, you know, we laugh about it now, but this woman ended up becoming a second mom to me. And her name was Mickey. And Mickey was a saint. She was an amazing woman. But Mickey exuded beauty. She had mastectomies because she had breast cancer. She had moles. She had flesh or skin cancer. She had everything. And yet, to me, she was probably one of, if not the most beautiful woman in the world because of her interior beauty that you're speaking of, which was holiness. Mm -hmm. She exuded true love. It was just true love. You felt like you were the most important person in the world when you were in her presence. And, Mm -hmm. And this is the key with theology of the body. The body expresses not just the body. The body expresses the interior person. And so if the interior, like we say this all the time to our kids, you know, there could be someone who's got a great body, very beautiful. But if they got, if they're in a sense, you know, let's just say they're not taking care of their soul, that body is not going to really be beautiful ultimately. Because mm-hmm. what is interior makes that, have you ever met someone you're like, you, you, you see a picture of them, but then when you're in the presence of that person, and they are mm-hmm. talking and you're div- you like, man, this person's so attractive, but their picture looks so different. <laughs> it's because that picture doesn't express the interior reality of the person. Whereas when you are with that person and they're firing through their eyeballs and they're speaking, you're like, I am loving this person mm-hmm. because that person, their interior person is being expressed in and through the body. And that's what we get into with sexuality because we're professing a truth when we have intercourse with one another, with our bodies, we're giving away not just our bodies, but the entire person. Mm. And I think that brings me in many respects to our third need of women of the seven needs, and that is emotional intimacy. You even mentioned things such as eye contact and conversation and how interior beauty comes out in the engagement with an individual where you might not see it in a photo yet when you engage with a person one-on-one. And I think that's fundamentally drawing us back to the relational dimension of the woman and how we as women crave emotional intimacy. In some respects, this can be a weakness of ours because we overemphasize the sentimental dimension. Often, just giving an example, many college or young adult women will engage in sexual intimacy out of a desire to experience emotional closeness rather than a desire for the sexual intimacy in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. What's the phrase they say that um, I mean, broad strokes here, but women use sex to get love and men use love to get sex, you know, and I know that's, you know, that's a kind of a crude, kind of, but there's some truth to that is that women crave emotional intimacy um, because that's where they really thrive, you know, and I, I realized this very early on in my marriage was like, I was craving physical intimacy, but let's face it, after, after three children and the third children was born at 20 weeks premature and I was becoming a threat to her because she wasn't supposed to become pregnant for at least a year. You know, I was wanting one thing, but I wasn't giving her what she really needed. And that's where our marriage started to fall apart. And then through a lot of conversations, a lot of prayer, theology, I I discovered my wife doesn't just need my body. She needs me. 
She needs emotional intimacy. And I think like a simple way to tackle this is, man, get a date night every week with your wife. Look her in the eyes and assure her that she is the most beautiful person in your world. Assure her that she's still the love of your life, you know, and and with our crazy life at home with a special needs child, I mean, just 10 minutes a night just to decompress and just listen to my wife and not try to fix her, you know, just listen and take it in and and love on her. That, that goes miles. You know what I mean? Um, Because I just feel like she's craving that attention like, I think you're the one who said this, right? To be understood, to be heard. And I think this is so important is that women, they need to be heard. Their, our wives need to be heard. They need to be understood. They don't need to be fixed like, you know, a plumbing project, you know, right. or something like that, electrical project. And seen, but yeah. seen and not in terms of beauty, but in ter- terms of our interior life, what we're going through, what we're experiencing, that emotional intimacy is so important. And I love where you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. even just taking the 10 minutes a day, or, you know, people talk a lot about taking a daily walk. I love our good friend Jim O'Day from Integrity Restored has mm. had this challenge that he opposed a couple of years ago here on the show. And I've tried to do it daily. And it's to share a high and low each day at the end of the day that you each share a high and low, no commentary. And you can ask questions to help, you know, with that <laughs> conversation. And then to also go on a walk and how that allows the opportunity to really understand the interior life of each other because men do need emotional intimacy as well, but don't always know how to share, right? And women need it as well. And so that's one way to cultivate it. Yet at the same time, women want eye contact. Men aren't as crazy about eye contact. And so walking side by side or doing some activity together helps to cultivate that emotional intimacy without necessarily the pressure for the eye contact to occur as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes guys try to fake the eye contact, and it looks like they're burning like a laser beam through their <laughs> wife's eyeballs, you know. <laughs> but I love what you're saying, though, because like it really speaks to. I think Paul said this uh, in Galatians. He said, "Bear one another's burdens as your own." And I think that, like uh, us guys, a lot of times we're just stressed out, you know, with work or with financial stress, whatever it is. We just can get. We, and we bottle it up, we hold it in. And so almost like the last thing we want to do is like, oh, great, I got to listen to someone rant for the next whatever. But I think that true, when you start to bear your wife's burdens as your own, you start to hear her heart. And, and, and this is what's interesting is that underneath all that, let's just say there's complaints and let's say there's struggles. But if you get underneath it, what is she really longing for? She's just longing to feel safe. She's just longing to feel secure. She's longing for hope. And this is one thing that I really believe. I can't solve people's problems. I can't even solve my own for Pete's sake. But one thing I can do is I can give people hope. And hope is a virtue. And virtue is power. That's what the Greek Mm -hmm. says. The Greek word for virtue is power. And so I can provide my wife hope. Hey, we're going to get through this. And you know what? We're going to get through it. And we're going to be happy. We're going to be joyful. I mean, there's we've had a lot of little struggles here and there. And like I'm telling you, what we're happier than ever, and I'm like, what's it's the done. secret? We're we're bearing one another's burdens as mm-hmm. our own, and there's something about when you you're hit with something that's uh, I don't know, extremely difficult and arduous, and you have somebody arm in arm to to take on that challenge with. There's joy in that. Mm-hmm. There's massive joy in that. You know. So you're, you're, anyway, you're, yeah. 
It reminded me of a story from the other night. I was feeling very frustrated or upset about something. I don't even remember what that what it was. And it's significant to me because as I think back on it, it was what my husband said that mattered to me. He was falling asleep, and I think he had already fallen asleep. And I really wanted to talk about something, and I kept talking <laughs> at, at him. And I finally go, wait, are you awake? And he goes, I am now. Just tell me what you have to say. You're like, I'm awake now. Just share it. And so you know, I unload maybe in a minute or two's worth of content knowing he's trying to sleep and I woke him up and he says, thank you for telling me. I understand this is really important. Now just go to sleep. <laughs> and that simple response was, okay, he heard it. He woke up to listen, even though he really could have just said, can we talk about this tomorrow? And he says, no, it's okay. I've got this. Go to bed. I have no idea what it was that I was frustrated about. It was so significant, you know, I needed to talk about it and wake him up. But his response was very significant. And I think that was an example of that emotional intimacy and security that women need. So we're unpacking those seven needs that a woman that women have with Devin Shat from the Fathers of St. Joseph. Devin will stick with us as we come back unpacking the last four of those needs from friendship to wanting to have a father for our children as women to the need for relationships, being in sync, and also for man to be a spiritual leader of the family. We'll be right back here on Trending with Devin Shatt. You can find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back. Joining me is Devin Shack. He's an author as well as the founder of the Fathers of St. Joseph. Find him at fathersofstjoseph.org. Devin, we're unpacking the seven needs of a woman. And next, we have a lot of ground to cover is friendship. How fundamental is friendship for a woman? You've experienced this in your marriage. You also have daughters as well. So talk to me a little bit about it. And I'd love to provide some commentary on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just think that, you know, I think St. Thomas Aquinas defines friendship as uh, another self. So being in relationship with almost another self, someone who believes what you believe, someone who, in a sense, thinks a lot like you think. But then friendship really, though, is when you live for the sake of the other, even at the expense of oneself. So a lot of times what we can do is, you know, like the the five love languages kind of thing, we can end up falling into emotional bartering or or marital bartering where (laughs) I give you this, (laughs) yeah, I give you this, you give me that. And that thing, whatever it is, becomes like an object on the table rather than I want you, I, I want you. And I love what you just said about your husband. I understand, I heard you, now go to sleep. But basically what he's saying is, you've got a need, I'm gonna address this, but really ultimately I can't fulfill it. And I think that's very important to all this is that none of us are God, right? And mm-hmm. so there's, the, 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 when, we, when our spouse is addressing our needs, loving us for the sake of ourselves beyond themselves, that is the experience of love. And that, that shows that you're worth trying for and dying for. And, and I think that that goes volumes even beyond the actual need being met, if that makes any sense. I, mean, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I think that when we're talking about friendship and how fundamental it is, 
whether it's not just meeting the needs of the other, which are important, but part of the needs of each other is to enjoy each other, to have fun. <laughs> and I know many therapists, especially Catholic therapists, comment on how the marriage starts to sh- suffer when the couple stops having fun together. You know, the, the ways of life and the experiences that occur in marriage, they can feel crippling. They can feel heavy. And yet what is often referred to as the most exciting time of a relationship is that wooing phase, right, when you're dating, first starting to date, but then also that honeymoon phase, often when you get married or you're entering into that season of marriage. And so when you talk about friendship, I think it's also cultivating interest and growth in each other, both in terms of that emotional side, but also the emotional side includes, let's just have fun. Let's do do something for the sake of doing it. Oh, I love I love that cultivating interest in the other, you know, because if it's just all about me and what I want and my hobbies and my initiatives, the relationship is going to die, you know, right. but to, to have to cultivate that interest, it, it takes work. You have to. I love that. You have to cultivate that interest in the other. What makes you tick? And it's not like it's static either. You know, the things that my wife liked when we first got married are much different than the things that she likes now. Mm. And so it, it it's like. Yeah, it's a moving target, yes, but I need to, like you're saying, have that intentionality to stay interested and then cultivate that interest to know what makes her tick and then come alongside of her in those things that she desires. But I I love it. You know, I think that having fun, laughing and whatever you have to do, like in a in a proper sense to make that happen, do it. Like if it's movie nights, if it's watching, you know, comedians, you know, whatever it takes, but just try to get to that place where you can laugh together again is so important because life can be very burdensome and especially Mm. with children and finances and everything like that, sicknesses, whatever it is. So we just really need to be able to laugh again. And it's, that's it. Yeah. I love it. Mm. I love it. Cultivating interest in the other. Beautiful. Let's unpack these last few while we still have time. Number five in meeting the seven needs of a woman is really understanding the need of a woman to have a father for her children. And I will just comment a few things. I think when we talk about fatherhood today, it's so misunderstood. You know, is it just showing up? Is it just fathering a child? Is it financially providing? It's all of it, right? It's, you know, men being the leaders, protectors, providers within the home, but that means leading the children, praying with the children, even disciplining the children, affirming the discipline of the children, not leaving that burden. You know, there's so many, I think, elements of the nitty-grittiness of this, but I think a key question to possibly be asked, Devin, is with regard to a woman wanting a father for her children, uh, women are called to have a keen sense of need or understanding of the need of a child. And with that, a woman... Pope St. John Paul II often points to can help in forming that relationship between the father and the children. That that relationship, maternal relationship, comes more naturally while the paternal relationship has to be developed further. And so some questions I think that can be significant for a husband or father to ask the wife to have that conversation about is, am I being present enough? And how could I be more present to you and the children? And I think that's really key because I think the crisis today over fatherhood has to do with what does the husband's presence look like and what are those expectations? Do we know how to meet them? Do we even know what they are? You should write a book on fatherhood. 
wow, <laughs> that was awesome. Seriously, that's that's fantastic. And I, I, you're right. I remember Pope John Paul II reading that where he says, in a certain sense, the man learns his fatherhood from his wife, from the mother. And I was like, what? That's crazy. But you're right, because women are so emotionally connected to their children. They understand their children's needs. They understand also, too, and I think this is a big one. Um, sarcasm can sometimes work with guys. So, like, if fathers are raising their sons and there's discipline with a little sarcasm, that can work. But but with daughters, that does not work. Um, <laughs> they, they is, it hurts their feelings so badly. And so, like, my wife is so on top of this. She's, like, she's cueing me constantly. Not constantly, but she's cueing me to, like, hey, this, this daughter has this certain need, or maybe you should say it like this or whatever. And this, this is where it really, what is, the fa- what is the father's job? He is to become an icon of God the Father. And God the Father is, uh, he's both and, right? He is, he is strong, and yet God is weak in Christ on the cross, right? He is great and all-powerful, and yet he is small and helpless as a babe. God is higher than the highest mountain, and yet that mountain reaches to the lowest part to reach humanity. That's God. And so a father is called to be like that. He's called to be strong, but yeah, he's called to be very gentle. He's called to be at times distant, but at times very close. And, and so part of this is humility. This is a huge, huge component or attribute of a true father because if he is able to listen to his wife cueing him, and granted, the wife shouldn't nag, right? But if she can cue him with her gift of counsel, his fatherhood is going to be exponentially better than if he's just running on his own. Mm, And the key here, and I think it's important to recognize, cue versus tell. And yeah, I think that's so hard. I have a hard time doing that too. I'm an oldest sibling, so I get that. The last two in those seven needs of a woman are, one, um, this idea of fulfillment and that relationships are in sync. And just touching on this, because I know we have just a few moments here. There's so much to be said. I'll just make a brief comment. But part of this, I think for women is, you know, I know for me, I have such a deep desire that I'm on the same page with other people. And sometimes so much so to the point of I want to think exactly the same for us to think the exact same thing or to really be understood and understand others. And yet I think men, you know, husbands can play such a key role in helping women to understand you. There's something beautiful about the other. This is why we love men and women in relationships. Uh, But at the same time, that we learn to respect and love each other through those differences and that our empathy while so strong, can also be key uh, to helping others in their development of a position or an idea or vice versa. Good. Uh, You nailed it. Yep. And I I do think that we need to strive to work in agreement with our spouses. Beautiful. We'll have to unpack more of this on another day, but just a brief comment, if you could. I think in that last need of a woman, and that is the need for holiness in the spouse, for him to sacrifice for the wife. I think we live in a culture where there's so much to be said to meeting our own needs, desires, carnal pleasures, yet at the end of the day, a father's holiness, his spiritual leadership in the home is key. And it's through his sacrifice that it helps in edifying the woman, helping her to grow in her faith and be a leader as well for her children. That's Devin Schapp from the Fathers of St. Joseph. Who do men find most attractive? Well, we'll unpack a study about that Tuesday on Trending with Timory. Also, why is there an attempt to change the definition of brain dead? And what does the Catholic Church have to say about that? Well, we'll unpack this 
topic of brain dead that you might not really ponder or experience day to day, yet it says a lot about what we believe as Catholics and how we navigate fundamental moral issues in society. So join me Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.